Good morning, friends. Welcome to The Well. My name is Ryan Gear. I'm the pastor here. If you're new with us, you're our guest. Thank you for being with us this morning. If you'd like to let us know you're here, just text the word welcome to 480-530-7234. It'll text you back with a digital connect card. Just fill that out and tell us about yourself and you'll get more information about The Well. Thanks for being with us this morning. And today is the fourth Sunday of Advent. Advent means arrival. And Advent is the season of the year when we prepare ourselves for the arrival of Jesus Christ all over again at Christmas. And now we know this Christmas is going to feel different than other Christmases. We are celebrating in the darkness of a pandemic when we look around for light and there doesn't seem to be much light at times in our society. And we will likely be physically distanced from people that we would like to spend Christmas with. And and so this Christmas is going to feel different than other Christmases. And that might be magnified for us because the the normal feelings that we have about Christmas are warm and fuzzy, kind of like a Hallmark card. We view it as as an ideal uh, occasion to spend time with the people we love and celebrate. And this year will just not feel like that. But when we read the Christmas story uh, about that first Christmas in, in the Gospels, and we read it in context, we realize that the first Christmas also took place in a time of darkness, in a time of great fear of disease. That's why there are so many healing stories in the New Testament about Jesus touching people, people's eyes or their ears and healing them because there was no medical science to speak of. And when the ICU beds fill up here, We are essentially returned to that time when we don't have the option of seeking medical care and we are afraid. And Jesus was born into a time ruled by dictators like King Herod in his land that is now Israel or uh, the Roman emperor Caesar who occupied his land and ruled much of the known world. And it was a time of increasing hatred between people. It was a divided time. There were people on both extremes. Some of them advocated for violence and wanted to overthrow the government. That is the time that Jesus was born into. So when we read the Christmas story in the light of its historical context, we realize actually, maybe for the first time, we feel what the first Christmas was like. When we read about light shining into the darkness, we now know what that darkness feels like here in 2020. And so in this series, we're talking about how this Christmas is probably a lot like the first Christmas. It was not uh, all bright and calm like we often uh, sing about in the lyrics of Silent Night and other Christmas carols. All was not calm. And today we're talking about the power of serving. Now that's a good religious title, eh? That sounds pretty good for a sermon title. And you might be thinking, oh yeah, yeah. I mean, there's power in serving. Sure, yeah, whatever that means. And, And the truth is, you hear a title like that and you think probably... I am not particularly consumed with power. So, you know, I'm not obsessed with power. I, I didn't wake up thinking about power this morning. And, and if that's true of you, excellent. Uh, you're probably a, a nice, compassionate person who is not obsessed with power. But there are people in America who are. In fact, our country is locked in a power struggle right now. And that power struggle is over what it means to be an American. And even bigger than that, because God is bigger than America, the power struggle is about what it means to be a a good human being on this planet. 
we are locked in a culture war, a power struggle about, about what we value as human beings, what we value as a society, the way we're going to live, the way we view other people, the way we treat each other, the way we respond to a pandemic, who gets healthcare, who doesn't. And in a time of massive inequality, we are locked in this power struggle about what it means to be a, a good, decent person on the, in this world and what it means to be an American. And that power struggle has revealed both the ugliness of humanity and the goodness of humanity all in one year. We have seen angry people walk up to a retail worker and cough in their face because they didn't want to wear a mask to shop. Uh, and we have seen medical professionals risk their lives caring for people who have COVID. We've seen both pictures of humanity this year. We've seen armed militias attempt to kidnap a governor because she instituted a quarantine in her state. And we have seen people march for equality for other people this summer. We've seen leaders downplay the danger of COVID-19, thinking about how they could help their own election chances, at least in their own minds. And we've seen leaders who truly care about the people they represent and who have shared the truth about COVID and taken measures to try to protect people from COVID. We have seen the unfortunate ugliness of humanity in 2020, and we have seen the beauty and goodness of humanity all in one year. Overall, I view it this way. We have seen people who believe power is taking what they want, even if it hurts other people, versus people who see power in valuing what benefits everybody. Doesn't that seem to capture the power struggle we're in right now? There are people who just want to take and take and take, and it's me and me and me. And then there are people who think about what benefits others, what's good for other people's health, what's, what's good for other people's livelihoods. That just seems to be the stark battle line that has been drawn in this power struggle in 2020. And so 2020 has reminded me of the kind of person I want to be. It's reminded me to, to reflect about the kind of person I want to be. And what does it mean to have power? How should I act in this world? How should I use my influence in this world? How should I think about myself and other people in the time that we live in? Do we want to be somebody who acts selfishly and our view of power is just taking or do we want to think about other people and our view of power is serving and thinking about what's good for everybody? The scripture today comes from Luke chapter 1. It's part of the familiar Christmas story when the angel Gabriel visits Mary and has an announcement for her. And so let's read this scripture together from Luke chapter 1, verses 26 through 38. In the sixth month of Elizabeth's pregnancy, that's Mary's cousin, God sent the angel Gabriel to Nazareth, a town in Galilee, to a virgin pledged to be married to a man named Joseph, a descendant of David. The virgin's name was Mary. The angel went to her and said, Greetings, you who are highly favored. The Lord is with you. If you grew up Catholic, that's Hail Mary. The Lord is with thee. Verse 29, Mary was greatly troubled at his words and wondered what kind of greeting this might be. But the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary. You have found favor with God. You will conceive and give birth to a son, and you are to call him Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. The Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over Jacob's descendants forever. His kingdom 
will never end. How will this be? Mary asked the angel, since I am a virgin. The angel answered, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. So the Holy One to be born will be called the Son of God. Even Elizabeth, your relative, is going to have a child in her old age, and she who was said to be unable to conceive is in her sixth month. For no word from God will ever fail. I am the Lord's servant, Mary answered. May your word to me be fulfilled. Then the angel left her. This last verse reveals Mary's choice about the kind of person that she wanted to be in this world. She says to the angel, I am the Lord's servant. May your word be, uh, to me be fulfilled. I am willing to serve. That was Mary's response right before that first Christmas. And every year when we read the Christmas story, I know that in, in the 21st century, we need to address how people should respond when they read miracles in the Bible. Obviously, one of the first questions people have when they question their faith, maybe when they deconstruct their faith, maybe you're doing that now, maybe you're deconstructing, maybe you're reconstructing, is how do we interpret miracles in the Bible? And a lot of times people read these stories and they think, I just can't, I can't go there. And they back away from their faith altogether. Maybe they leave the faith and, and often the inciting incident in their faith journey is that they're just not sure how to deal with miracles presented in the Bible. So when you read miracles in the Bible, the original readers or hearers of these miracles did not think, did this really happen? People in the ancient world, for the most part, were not asking themselves the question, did the Virgin Mary conceive miraculously and have a son? Did, did this miracle really happen? That's not the question they asked. They lived before the scientific revolution in a different era of human history. The question they asked was, when they heard about a miracle, was what does it mean? What does this miracle mean? For those of us in the 21st century who are skeptical and we struggle when we read accounts of miracles in the Bible, miracles in the Bible are not there as ends in themselves. Miracles are there for their meaning. Even if we could factually prove in the 21st century that a young woman reproduced without any other help with her chromosomes, this is a family show, I realize lots of people and kids may be listening right now, there would be scientific tests run on her to determine how she reproduced this way. I think sharks can reproduce like this, humans cannot, uh, as far as we know. And there would be tests conducted on her. And if somehow the test revealed that in fact she did reproduce on her own, it would not therefore prove that her child is the offspring of God. That's the meaning that we're given in the scripture. And so even if the miracle literally happened as it is said, it doesn't necessarily prove the outcome that we're given here in scripture. What counted then is its meaning. And if we want to understand what this means for our faith in, in 2020, the miracle is not there as an end in itself. It's there for its meaning. And so we ask the question, what does this miracle mean? Mary was a young girl, perhaps 12, 13, 14 years old. The typical age that a girl in her culture was betrothed to be married to a man who was often several years older than her. Mary probably lived in what was essentially a cave 
When I visited Israel in uh, January of 2012, we visited what was believed to be the home of Mary, or at least we don't know that for sure, but a home like, may, like the one she may have lived in. And early churches were built there uh, to honor her, and it's, it's a cave. Mary was from a poor peasant family in a small village that is not even spoken of in antiquity. There's a, a nearby city uh, called Sepphoris where there was money, and that city is spoken of outside of the Bible, but Nazareth is not. Mary was largely invisible in her society. She essentially had no rights. And to be pregnant out of wedlock could carry severe punishment for Mary. When Mary said, I am the Lord's servant, may it be to me as you have said, she was risking punishment. She was putting herself in a very uncomfortable place. So that's one of the meanings we get out of this this story uh, from the first Christmas, that being willing to serve God will often put us in an uncomfortable place. It means that in some sense, we relinquish a sense of power and control that we hold so dear. Of course, we want life our way. Of course, we want to feel like we're in control. If, if you think of yourself as a control freak, congratulations, you're normal. That's just part of being human. Of course we want to control our circumstances. Of course we want to feel powerful. Of course we want to experience pleasure and not pain. That makes you normal. But one of the meanings that we can gather from this miracle is perhaps there's more to that. There's more to life than that. Perhaps there is more for our lives than that. Perhaps true power is not found in just guarding my own sense of control and maintaining my own sense of comfort all the time. But it's being willing to serve and be open and, and be willing to do what's best for the benefit of others, even if it makes us uncomfortable at times. The power struggle that we are locked in in America right now, it's the power struggle over questions like this. Do we value diversity or only one race in America? Questions like, do we value science or do we value irrationality? in doing whatever is convenient and comfortable for us, even if medical science tells us something different. Questions like, do we value everybody's well-being or just the well-being of some of us? Do we value democracy or do we want a dictator? As unbelievable as it is, those are the questions that are being decided right now in this power struggle at the end of 2020 in America, when some people want to overturn what was determined by 50 court cases to be a free and fair election, they are not interested in democracy anymore. It's about power. That's where we find ourselves at the end of this year. Congressman Jim Clyburn is a member of the U.S. House of Representatives from South Carolina. He, he's a pastor's kid, and his wife was a librarian uh, for her entire career, and she just passed away this past year. And he's an older man who has lived his life as an African-American in South Carolina. And so he has the stories to tell. He has experienced both sides of the power struggle, so to speak, in the United States. He's been a, a member of society who was persecuted for his race, and he's been a member of society who holds power as a U.S. Congressman, in fact, he holds immense power. For almost 30 years, he's hosted a fish fry that any Democratic candidate for president has to attend. He is essentially the kingmaker in South Carolina because he is so influential and beloved uh, 
as a congressman in South Carolina. This year, he almost single-handedly revived Joe Biden's candidacy. If you remember, Joe Biden lost several early primaries. And then when he got to South Carolina, Jim Clyburn turned his fortunes around. Jim Clyburn is one of the most influential people in America. And I, I watched an interview with him recently in which the interviewer asked him as an African-American man in the South, what do we do about all of this existing intolerance and hatred and division in this country? And uh, Congressman Clyburn quoted the French sociologist from the 1800s, Alexis de Tocqueville, who visited America and wrote uh, a classic work called Democracy in America in 1835. And this quote is from chapter six of Democracy in America. And the chapter is entitled, What Sort of Despotism Democratic Nations Have to Fear? This was written in 1835. Let's read this together. De Tocqueville says, I, I seek to trace the novel features under which despotism, of course, dictatorship, tyranny, may appear in the world. The first thing that strikes the observation is an innumerable multitude of men, all equal and alike, he's talking about the United States, incessantly endeavoring to procure, procure the petty and paltry pleasures with which they glut their lives. Each of them living apart is as a stranger to the fate of all the rest. His children and his private friends constitute to him the whole of mankind. As for the rest of his fellow citizens, he is close to them, but he sees them not. He touches them, but he feels them not. He exists but in himself and for himself alone. And if his kindred still remain to him, he may be said at any rate to have lost his country. This observation was made about America in 1835. When a French person visited the United States and observed about our society, that each of us seems to think that just the people immediately around us are the only people that matter to us, if that. And that Americans seem to be isolated, thinking of ourselves, and oblivious to the rest of the world and the needs of other people. And he observed that we were radically individualistic. That Americans have a view of the world that is rooted in individualism. There are some positives to that as we seek personal freedom and to try to better ourselves. And we believe in rags to riches here that you can rise above your circumstances. There are positives to that, but there are also negatives. And to Tocqueville observe that one of those negatives is we can live through life, go through life around other people, but essentially cut off from their experience of the world. That we only see life through our own eyes, that we're only concerned about our own well-being, and hopefully at least the well-being of, of those immediately around us, but to everybody else, they're strangers to us. Even though they're close, we are concerned about ourselves. He says, when we go through life only concerned about ourselves, as individuals or our little tribe, we have lost our country. De Tocqueville also wrote this. He said, we can state with conviction, therefore, that a man's support for absolute government is in direct proportion to the contempt he feels for his own country. In other words, you can't want a dictator unless you hate your country. 
For people who want some king or some dictator to overturn an election and take over the country, it's an oxymoron for those people to call themselves a patriot. You can't be somebody who wants a dictator and then call yourself a patriot. Some, I had a conversation like this the other day with a friend who, who observed the people who call themselves patriots most often seem to really like Confederate flags. When somebody is in a, a parade and they're waving a Confederate flag you know, hooked to the back of their truck, they can call themselves patriots all they want, but their actions speak louder than words. People who are true patriots who love this country don't have to go around talking about how patriotic they are all, are all the time. Alexis de Tocqueville observed that when you live your life only thinking about yourself and you don't care about how other people in your country or in your world are doing, you have lost your country. And then the only people who want a dictator to just do whatever they want, whatever benefits them as an individual, they hate their country. They're only concerned, concerned about themselves. That was written in 1835. We have seen in 2020 both the ugliness of humanity and the beauty and goodness of humanity. But when we go through life as individuals, only concerned about ourselves and our own power to get whatever we want, we lose the relationships that we value most. We lose unity as a country, but this is also true in, in our personal lives. That breaks apart marriages. That alienates our children. We lose our friends and family. Some of you have experienced that. There are people who seem to be only concerned about themselves and you've, you've realized their views are racist and, and their views are selfish and you just don't want to be a part of that. And, and in a sense, that person has pushed you away. Their radical individualism and not being concerned about anybody else has pushed you away and alienated you. When we choose to live that way, we repel the people we truly need the most. This is true of people who refuse to wear a mask and people who refuse to budge in a relationship. It's true of people who hold racist views. It's also true of people who play politics in church and they just want what they want. It's all based in selfishness, in this radical individualism not concerned about anybody else, as de Tocqueville says, in, says, incessantly endeavoring to procure the petty and paltry pleasures with which they glut themselves. A selfish life reveals the, the ugliest parts of humanity. But the most powerful way to live, the most powerful act is being concerned about the welfare of everybody, what benefits Everybody, the most powerful act, even if it makes us uncomfortable, is giving of ourselves for the benefit of all of us. That's what Mary did. Because she was willing to serve and, and enter an experience of life that made her very uncomfortable. She engaged in an immensely powerful act that benefited all of us. Even if you were to look at this from a purely secular perspective, even a selfish perspective. Mary moved from being an unknown peasant to probably the most famous woman in the history of the world. Mary is one of the most inspirational figures in the history of the world. I've read that Mary is the most common female name in the world. 
Her choice to serve, even though it made her uncomfortable, elevated her to a status of worldwide fame and influence and made her an inspirational figure. If you're a person of faith and you want to follow her son, Jesus Christ, then her act of service benefits you in ways that you could never measure. Mary said, I am the Lord's servant. I'm here to serve. I'm here to do what benefits all of us. I want to be on team God. I want to be on team good, even if it makes me uncomfortable at times. Some people think serving others is weakness and negotiating and giving is weakness. That couldn't be farther from the truth. Jesus gave of himself in the most powerful act of serving on the cross in our faith. Serving is an incredibly powerful act and it changes the world. When we choose to to care about other people, not just ourselves, it changes the world. And and this is what Mary was referring to in the Magnificat that we read last week from Luke chapter 1 when she said, God has brought down rulers from their thrones but has lifted up the humble. He has filled the hungry with good things but he has sent the rich away empty. In other words, God wants to level the playing field. Those who are prideful and haughty come down. God makes them come down. And those who are lowly and depressed and oppressed are lifted up. There's an There's an equalization that God wants to accomplish. There's a leveling of the playing field that God wants to perform in this world. Thinking about what's good for everybody, not just the individual. And that's the the incredibly powerful result that comes from serving when we're willing to think about what's good for everybody. Now, inspiring examples of the power of serving are all around us, especially in 2020, from school teachers to volunteers in nonprofits to those who without media coverage or any attention or fame drop off a Tupperware container full of soup to somebody who is sick and nobody ever sees it except for them and their friend or folks who pick up groceries for somebody who is high risk. There are millions of examples of thinking about others and serving and the power of serving that are known only to God and that other person. Many of you have chosen the power of serving in so many ways this year. And as Jesus said, you are storing up for yourself treasure in heaven. And in 2020, some of the heroes this year are the medical professionals who risked their lives and continue to risk their lives to save other people's lives. Their service consists of the powerful act of healing people who would die otherwise. That's power because they chose to serve. I want to show you a video that was produced by the the ICU nursing unit at Harborview Hospital in Washington. And this video features one nurse telling the story of her nursing team during the COVID-19 pandemic. It's about five minutes long. It's worth every second that it takes to watch it. And this demonstrates the power of serving, especially during the pandemic in 2020. And so in honor of people who are risking their lives to save lives, let's watch. 
Catherine. Here. Haley. Here. Chris. Rebecca. Here. Kathleen. I can't exactly remember the exact moment I heard COVID-19. I was supposed to take a trip with my son to Japan. More and more news. It's like, eh, we'll be fine. And then it just seemed to explode. Initially, we thought we just might need eight beds. And then as we started getting into the COVID ICU, it became apparent that we were going to have to stretch. These patients have to come in here and they're super sick. So you have to put yourself in their shoes to feel what they feel. You're in a hospital with strangers all around you telling you to breathe, telling you to cough, and you're restrained and tied down. Hey, Joe, this is Breezy in COVID ICU land. We're getting ready to supinate a patient and cannulate them for ECMO. I think day two of me working my first week in the COVID ICU, I just knew that this was going to get a lot bigger and it could get really scary here. So I called my friend that night and my son was on a plane by 10 a.m. the next morning. He's in Kauai right now, and he's been there since March 11th. You already tested this thing? Yep. I usually work seven nights in a row. The day before, I have to take a long nap to make sure I can mentally switch and function appropriately. And then you can get through your 12-hour shift. You're trying your best, all the little tricks that you've known that have worked on patients that have had the really sick lungs in the past. But these tricks are not working. People are getting sicker. Whenever you put a breathing tube into somebody for the first time, you risk having droplets come out. There's definitely a risk. You do it. I always tell them what I'm doing, even if they are sedated. I always believe that people can hear you when you need to talk to them. We're going to turn you to the other side now. I'm going to give you this med. It's for this. You just verbalize it out loud. You hold people's hands. You sit there with them, talk about something that has nothing to do with the COVID-19. You just ask them about them. So I get to know them, their families, because they can't talk to their family. You're that bridge. And all you want to do is make sure that this person can go home. Arterial camp is slowly coming up. If you're already at the max level of support that you can give and their oxygen levels are dropping, there's really not much you can do except just let the family know. And can you imagine holding up a, a iPad to somebody who's intubated, really sick, and hearing their family tell them goodbye? Absolutely heartbreaking. I'm gonna bring the camera over to him, okay? Tears are coming down your face. I mean, you're human. This sucks. And we had a coworker, very young. We don't know if she got actually exposed at work, but she started feeling sick and she took herself off the schedule. Doing at home, like a lot of people do who test positive, but it just came to the point where she couldn't do that. Hey, sweetie. You're in the hospital, okay? You're at Harborview. We're going to take good care of you. She was with us for seven days on that breathing machine. She would write on a board. 
being a nurse, she would always want to know what her vent settings were. And I think we were all standing outside the room when we knew that we were going to take that breathing tube out. And we were all so scared. We all held our breath. She had that tube out and she was fine. We finally won one. We did not let COVID win. We won. Until we get a vaccine, there is no way that this can't be part of our everyday life. We're going to adapt to it, we're going to learn from it, and we're going to grow from it. I have never been so tired when I get home. <laughs> I am physically, mentally exhausted. That's when I either cry on my way home, I also take a walk down to the water when I lose patience. It's kind of a Hawaiian ritual. And just say goodbye. As a nurse, I fear getting sick, especially since now my son is not here. He texts me all the time and says, Mom, please don't get sick. It's a possibility. This disease could take any one of us at any time, and I'd be a fool to think that I was immune. I knew what I was getting into, and I chose it. I was meant to be a nurse. She said, I was meant to be a nurse. That is the power of serving. That's power. And that choice to serve other people is perhaps the most powerful act we could engage in. We owe a massive thank you to every essential worker, to teachers, to uh, anybody who has been on the front lines during this pandemic. Their acts of service have been powerful beyond measure in our lives this year, including doctors and nurses and EMS workers and medical professionals and those who have researched vaccines and now who are distributing vaccines so that more people can live. They have demonstrated the power of serving in 2020. And so thank you. And to those of you in our congregation who have been essential workers and medical professionals, thank you. Now, there are so many ways to serve others, but most importantly, um, for all of us, even those of us who are not essential workers, the power of serving begins with just being willing to think about the needs of others. As Mary said, I am the Lord's servant. I'm here to serve. It's a mentality. It's a habit. It's a spiritual discipline that we can develop. This mentality of just being willing to look past ourselves and being willing to serve. Savannah Guthrie is the host of the Today Show on NBC, and she's from Tucson, actually. I didn't know that until recently, and obviously she lives in New York now, and she's a part of a church in New York, and it's a relatively new church called Good Shepherd in Manhattan, and Good Shepherd is kind of loosely connected relationally to the same network that the, that the well is in, and we have some things in, in common with uh, Good Shepherd in Manhattan. And her pastor is a young guy who founded this church. His name's Michael Rosina. And uh, this past Friday on the Today Show, Savannah Guthrie interviewed her pastor about how to 
celebrate Christmas during a year like this. And, and she said, in a year of heartache, anger, and grief, many people have wondered where to find faith and hope. And then she sat down with her pastor in this, this beautiful church building, and she asked him what he would say to people who are grieving and having such a hard time celebrating Christmas this year. And, and he talked about grief and joy, similar to the way we did in the, in the first week of this series. If you missed that, you can go to wellchurch.org and, and, and watch or listen to that sermon. And, and then he shared the scripture that he's been thinking about most of this year is the feeding of the 5,000 in the Gospels. When, when a huge number of people were listening to Jesus teach, and they were there all day, and everybody realized, we don't have a meal, we're hungry. And, and the disciples said to Jesus, we don't, we don't know what to do. And, and Jesus says, you feed them. And they're like, with what? <laughs> we, we don't have the food to feed these people. And Jesus says, well, tell me what you have. And they, they come up with, with five loaves and two, two fish. And Jesus says, well, we'll use that. That'll do. And this miraculous feeding of the 5,000 takes place where the disciples team up with Jesus and they just start distributing food. And everybody in this massive crowd is fed miraculously. And then they have leftovers to take for themselves. And this pastor talked about how the feeding of the 5,000 meaning for us is that we can team together. And even though we feel like we don't have enough, that we're not powerful enough that we could make a difference in society and do all the things that need to be done in 2020 to help people. If we band together, we may find that miraculously there is power in our acts of service, the power to change people's lives. Those few things are multiplied and there is amazing power in being willing to serve. It's a mentality. Maybe your story is not dramatic. Maybe a lot of us would actually think it is if you told us, but you don't think it is. Your acts of service, but it is all rooted in just being willing to think, oh, I wonder how that person is doing. Somebody texted me this past week letting me know that somebody else in our church was going through a really hard time. And they wanted to let the pastor know so I could check on them too. They sent a text. Now, in their own mind, they might think all I did was, you know... I used my thumbs and I sent a text. But what they really did was they were thinking about what could help that other person. They cared. They made the decision to care. And there is amazing power in that decision. That's the difference between somebody who lives only caring about themselves and radical individualism, oblivious to the needs of others, and somebody who has decided, I want to care about other people. I want to think about what benefits other people, even if it makes me uncomfortable. Now, here's some additional great news this Christmas season. Choosing to serve and live like that, it doesn't always make you a martyr. It doesn't always make you uncomfortable, maybe a little at first, but actually choosing to live that way can benefit you too. If we care for people who have COVID and provide medical care and we get vaccinated, we are less likely to get it ourselves. And if we have a strong infrastructure of care and preventative health, we are likely to be more healthy. 
So caring about the needs of others also helps us. And as I was typing out the, the story of this, this nurse from the, the video I showed, my now 10-year-old, because he just had a birthday this past, this past week, walked into the room where I was working on my sermon. And um, he, uh, he asked me about the green guitar. And so the green guitar is a guitar that somebody gave to our family a few months ago. And they gave us a little practice amp too. And they knew that, that my boys play music, they play guitar and drums, and I brag about them all the time, and you're probably tired of hearing about it, but I'm just proud of them. And they're, they're musical little guys, they have talent, and, and they, they knew that, and so they gave us this guitar and this practice amp. And of course, we're extremely grateful for that. And then my sons already have a guitar and, and amp, they, so they have those things. And so this, this green guitar that my son was talking about is an extra that's just laying around. It's not being used. And the same for the little practice amp. And, and so he walked in while I was working on my sermon. He's like, you know, I was thinking, you know, my friends, you know, maybe they could be in a band with me. If they had guitars and drums and musical instruments, you know, they, we could be in a band when COVID's all over. They could come over and we could, we could play and, and, and be in a band together. And I said, okay, yeah, that'd be awesome. And, and do they have instruments? And he said, no, they don't. And he mentioned one of his little buddies and, and he said, um, you know, he told me before that he would like to play guitar. I'm like, well, does he have a guitar? And he's like, no. And then he said to me, what if we gave him the green guitar? I said, oh buddy, I think that's, that's a great idea. Yeah, that would be really cool. And he, he was so excited that he could give this guitar to his friend. Now, it's a cool guitar. I mean, it would be fun to keep it. There's a little bit of you know, being uncomfortable in giving up that, that cool green guitar. But the joy on his face when he thought about the possibility of giving his friend this guitar and that they could be in a band together. If his friend learns to play it, like they could play music together. And, and then he said, well, wait a second. He doesn't have any picks. He needs some guitar picks. And I'm like, okay, well, yeah, well, let's give him some guitar picks. And, he, and, and he's like, wait, he doesn't have an amp. And it's, oh, well, we have that little practice amp over there that that person gave to us. And he's like, yeah, we could give him the amp. And he's like, wait, he doesn't have a cable. You have to plug the guitar into the amp. And I'm like, well, yeah, we could give him a cable. And he's like, wait, he doesn't have any headphones because it's a practice amp and you can plug headphones in it and listen to yourself play. And like within five minutes, he's like ready to give our whole house away. There is so much joy in him talking about giving this guitar and this amp to his friend. And now, of course, he's thinking, you know, if he gets good, we could be in a band together. And I said, well, you know, maybe he won't get good. Maybe, maybe he, he won't be able to be in a band. And, and he said, well, it's still, it's still cool to give it to him. It still feels really good to give it to him. And so either way, my son, who's 10, had this, this realization, this experience that giving is the right thing either way. Yeah, sometimes it makes you uncomfortable and you don't get anything back. But sometimes, a lot of times actually, you actually benefit by caring about other people and thinking about their needs. Hey, he could have somebody in his band now. Or we could help other people be, to be healthy during the pandemic and we are less likely to get sick. If we think about the needs of others in a time of growing wealth inequality, 
well, then they'll have less need and they'll be happier and more productive members of society. And there are some that won't have to turn to crime to meet their basic needs. And that makes society safer. I mean, that's a cynical view, but, but then other people will be happier and our country will be better off. And that will make life better for all of us. If we, like Mary said in the Magnificat, if, if we can be on team God or team good and work to level the playing field, to work for some equalization in society. And so an act of serving here in 2020 might be as a church when we would love to have Christmas Eve together in person and sing Silent Night by Candlelight the way we always do. When, well, when medical researchers at U of A are begging people to stay home and avoid social gatherings, especially super spreader events, well, it looks like having church online. And so our Christmas Eve service this Thursday will be online only. And we're meeting on, online like this for church. Maybe it looks like how, because of your generosity, we can give donations to Matthew's Crossing for Thanksgiving. We gave $1,000 to them, a food bank here in Chandler, and then we gave $1,000 this past week to Ascend Food Bank and Community Center here in Chandler for Christmas because of your generosity. Maybe that's what serving looks like. I know some of you have looked actively looked for ways to serve this year. You've checked in on people you know who might be feeling lonely during the quarantine. You provided food to people who were sick or who were grieving the loss of a loved one. Months ago, we had several people volunteer to be on a grocery team to go pick up groceries for people who are high risk in our church. And we have people in our church who are essential workers, your teachers or cashiers, and you work in the office. And, and because of what you do for a living, you're willing to put yourself in a place that is risky, but you do that because other people depend on you. And you're, you're keeping the wheels turning in, in the United States. Thank you for serving. Thank you for everything you've done. We owe a thank you to each other, especially those of us who have proven by their actions they have decided the kind of person they want to be. In a year that has revealed the ugliest parts of human nature and the most beautiful and inspiring parts of human nature, we do have the opportunity to reflect don't we, on the kinds of people that we want to be. Am I going to be somebody who, like de Tocqueville said, is blinded by radical individualism to where I only care about myself and maybe the people immediately around me, and I'm oblivious to the needs of other people? He said that person has lost their country. Or do I want to be like Mary? who heard an announcement that put her in a very uncomfortable place. And she said, I am the Lord's servant. I'm here to serve. May it be to me, as you have said, what kind of people do we want to be here at the end of 2020 during this Christmas season? We have the ability to make a choice. And like Mary, may we be people who believe in the power of serving. Will you pray with me? God, thank you for this scripture, this miracle that is difficult for some of us in the 21st century to understand. We read a miracle like this and in our first enlightenment post-scientific revolution question is, did that really happen? How could something like that really happen? And then the rest of 
the rest of the scripture that we read, we approach from a, from a distance, a sense of skepticism, because we just can't get past what's difficult to believe. But for the original hearers and readers of the Christmas story, their question was not, did this miracle happen? or any miracle that they read in the scripture, but their, their question was, what does this miracle mean? What does it teach us about life? What does it teach us about God? What does it teach us about ourselves? What does it teach us about our relationships to, to, with each other and our relationship to, to the world around us? What does this miracle mean? And one of the many things this miracle means is there is tremendous power in serving. When somebody is willing to leave their comfort zone and they're willing to serve for the benefit of other people, that can change the world. In fact, it's the only thing that does. And in this time of great division and power struggle in the United States, we have seen the ugliness of those who only want whatever they think is good for them. And they'll cough in somebody's face to mock them that they're concerned about COVID and wearing a mask. Or they'll pretend it's a hoax, or they'll deny it, or they'll make fun of people who listen to medical science. Or they refuse to get a vaccine that has been tested and approved and because they're skeptical and they're concerned only, only for themselves. Or, like Mary, we can make the choice that we want to serve. We want to care about what's good, not only for ourselves, but for other people. And we can experience this amazing news that often what is good for other people is also good for us. Sometimes, yes, it just makes us uncomfortable to serve. And Jesus says you have treasure in heaven when that happens. You are, you are making deposits in, in your account for the life to come when it's only you and God who knows the good thing that you've done. And, and Jesus says, well done, when you're willing to do that. But a lot of the times, actually, when we're willing to serve other people, it helps us too. And God, we celebrate the fact that thinking about other people often makes life better for us as well. We thank you, God, that when so many people view serving as weakness and thinking about other people as weakness or listening to science as weakness or wearing a mask as weakness or fear, God, we know the truth that there is world-changing, life-saving power in serving. We thank you for that. In Jesus' name.